Hello and welcome to the Grand Cinema Hotel, a podcast hosted by two friends who love cinema. Tonight you'll be staying in room 183, The Life Aquatic with Steve Zizou, the fourth film directed by Wes Anderson. So go ahead, get comfortable, and throw on that Do Not Disturb sign as you visit the underwater world and The Life Aquatic with Steve Zizou. The Belafonte, home to Team Zizou. Scaled crew of deep sea divers, adventurers, documentary filmmakers. Action! Led by internationally renowned oceanographer Captain Steve Zissou, expert on every aspect of marine life. Swamp leeches, everybody! Check for swamp leeches! Nobody else got hit? I'm the only one? What's the deal? But there remains one form of life about which Captain Zissou knows very little. You're supposed to be my son, right? What's going on, all my Zisu Society Junior members? And thank you for checking back in. If you're listening on YouTube, make sure you like, subscribe, comment, as it goes a long way to help the channel. As always, I'm Gus, and I'm joined with my co-host Alvaro. What's up, man? And we're back. The Anderthon, the Wes Anderson Marathon, continues. Uh, it's been been quiet for a while. We did the first three. Uh, we're entering Wes Anderson's mid period, and uh, we're here with a really fun movie that we both enjoy. Nothing mid about it. Quite a bit. Yes, that is true. <laughs> I mean mid as in the middle of his filmmaking yeah, yeah. career. Just just to clarify, <laughs> I've never seen you get so angry. Your eyes, the way they just bulged in front of me like a cartoon character. How dare you! <laughs> uh, <laughs> I will say about this movie though, sublime. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but before we get started, it is a long tradition on this podcast for the almost two full years that we've been doing it. Oh, you know what? I do think this is over two years of doing it. If you're hearing this episode, the podcast has existed for two calendar years. So, uh, wow. Who could have seen that coming? Thank you to everyone who listens to the show. It's been a ton of fun and I still love doing this just as much as I did when we first started. And there's some really good fucking movies coming out. Uh, we've seen some good ones recently, and we did want to acknowledge that it's Halloween, October. That's kind of where I was going with this when I started, before I had that crazy realization. Um, no, yeah, but it's October, so we've been watching some scary movies. Uh, I'll start off by saying I have seen this film today that I really enjoyed. Alvaro saw it a few days ago, When Evil Lurks. Let's not spill too much, because we're going to do an episode on this, but... Wow, right? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> this is one that I think um, you talk about putting your conversation pieces all into one thought process um, as your partner is kind of like um, the podcast has been founded on a lot of things, which is a lot of like highlighting, especially in the beginning, um, a lot of the movies that we just liked, whether people, you know, liked them or not, or um, how often we were watching movies, but then it always was really tied into horror as well, so... There's always a little niche with those with those things, and like Teton is obviously the first episode, so I think that always really bleeds into the podcast. And Lamb was the third, I believe. So we always kind of take <clears throat> for us October is um, Christmas on the podcast, you know. So there's always a you know a certain vibe that we really like attached to all year, and this is the month that everybody else wants to be part of it. But yeah, this movie specifically, we've always been horror adjacent, huh? Sorry to cut you off before no, yeah, you started, yeah. but. We're, like, right on that tiptoeing line of, like, we could easily be an all-horror podcast, and I don't think we'd be worse off for it, because we really... I love that stuff. Yeah, look, I think, <laughs> you know? I think, the, I think the only thing that really stops us is we love 
Wes Anderson just as much. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Martin Scorsese just as much. So then we end up like liking these dramas just as much. So it's kind of like, oh, never mind. We I still want to do those too. But that's why I kind of wanted to preface like this this movie, you know, from Argentina, Spanish movie. Um, very very small stuff. Heard about it. Um, I had just selling guests that I had just kind of heard about it from people who went to TIFF and on YouTube um, people just kind of bringing it up horror heads that um really enjoyed it but you know there's certain movies that even when they're at these festivals that I think only a select people even kind of really want to see so kind of went blind into this one and just really enjoyed its um take honestly on just again not trying to give out too much but on on a theme that we've talked about on this podcast very many times um it's comparable to another movie that's out right now that i don't think i'll watch maybe you know once it's out like the exorcist yeah very common themes you know but we don't like this this argentina movie um just does it so well and i like i really just couldn't really champion it enough and I i would wish more people go to watch it you know I went in completely blind. I saw that you had seen it, and I saw that many other people I follow on Letterboxd and uh, Guillermo del Toro as well championing this movie. So I was like, okay, okay, let's go. You know, uh, Guillermo del Toro is always there to help spread, you know, world Latin cinema, not just Mexico. Yeah. Uh, So I started seeing um, just small word of mouth here and there. Uh, The horror enthusiast of Letterboxd, you know, Uh, going to town for this one so I was like okay let me see what's up and uh, I know you will travel farther than I do to see a movie just because you know with the kid and everything but I was like oh man I really hope this is playing in uh, our local theaters because I don't want to wait till this is on shutter to go see it Mm -hmm. and I would recommend if you can see this before it's on shutter to go ahead and do that because as much as I love shutter it never works well for me I don't think it's the greatest streaming platform but uh, and I also think it is a little too niche sometimes that uh, movies are not really going to get seen on there that I do think are worth being on something like Hulu or Netflix, where it's kind of a when a Hulu movie comes out, like no one will save you, which is another movie I saw recently that I think is pretty good um, or Prey, Right. Like something like that on Hulu. It gets good word of mouth because Hulu is big enough. That's like that. That might as well be installed on everybody's TV nowadays. So I do think that sometimes Shudder is a little too small for the uh, ambitious films that can be seen on there. And I do think this is one of them. Uh, To me, I think of The Wailing and I think of The Empty Man and small little uh, doses of hereditary with the family element of this movie. Uh, I also don't want to get into it too much, but I will say, because you compared it to The Exorcist, uh, that I think that this is a wholly original film on a very familiar concept. I've never seen anything like this. And maybe because I've seen very few Argentinian movies, that's why I feel this way. But I feel safe uh, going out and saying that I do think that this is a pretty unique film. I don't know. I don't care what country you're from. That This is a movie that I don't, you don't really see just coming out, and, coming out every day, you know? Yeah, I guess that's like, um, it's really interesting to me. The, the availability of this movie was because it was... All the movies that maybe later to talk about after this that I've watched recently, this was at our local theater, which I found it. I think it has to do, a lot to do with the people around us. They know speak Spanish, so a lot of the Spanish um, spoken movies come to our local theater, and they weren't in LA, which I find interesting. So that's why um, I, 
I was just really lucky that I was able to watch this one on a on a day that I just kind of felt like was meant to be for horror and this I, I mean I walked out after this was the last movie I had watched after three of them and I was like this one rips the most and um, I'm glad we brought this one up first because I do I do think it's going to be the least watched one out of all of them as well but um you know I, I've talked in other episodes before but like not really I obviously you know sometimes just like to shit talk but like that's the limit like the capabilities or limited capabilities of shutter i still think they you know they they're on their budget and then one day that's going to change but i do think this movie transcends whatever you might think a quote-unquote shutter movie is supposed to be and i think it does have a lot to do with it being international so you know you don't have those um expectations you you have american expectations or foreign expectations of other countries but um it just takes you for another swing and like something you're not really used to i think yeah, I do think that this is the kind of movie that just transcends all boundaries, language barriers, uh, genre, you know, like I just think this is truly a special movie. It's really jumped up my rankings instantly for like one of my favorite movies of the year. Um, and next week we'll go ahead or well, not next week. The next episode will be on <coughs> uh, when evil lurks. And then Killers of the Flower Moon. So we will be taking a small break from the Wes Anderson Marathon. Hey, guys, got a lot of movies, you know. (laughs) Uh, And uh, uh, the other ones are starting to come out. So as much as I would love the the uniformity of every single one of them being next to each other, uh, it is what it is, man. It's that time of the year. This is what people like me and you have podcasts for because this time of the year where it's like, okay, this is coming out. This is coming out, you know. Napoleon in 70 millimeter. Michael Mann's movie, you know, all these movies that are coming out at the London Film Festival that I'm seeing people talk about. Uh, Some of the movies that you've already seen, like Anatomy of a Fall, right? It's just like, there's so much coming that I don't think that this is going to be able, we're not going to be able to keep sustaining of just doing Wes Anderson movies. And I do think that we'd be doing a disservice to not talk about some of these other really fucking good movies that are coming out before the conversation has left, which is like, you know, that's like a two week period nowadays with movies. Uh... But yeah, I don't know. I've seen a couple of other uh, fun ones. I've been keeping it pretty light, I'd say, this Halloween. The ones I'll really bring up are like, I watched Army of Darkness again. Uh, I watched Phantom of the Paradise, Brian De Palma's film from the 70s. Uh, rock opera musical mashup of Faust and uh, The Phantom of the Opera. It's fantastic. It was a five-star banger for me. Instantly, I was like, this isn't. this is one of those movies where... I can't even believe they made this, but I also can't believe that someone thought about this and then was able to convey it in a way that actually fucking works. You know, like it's just a really, really fun movie that just right up my alley of what I like to see. And then some other ones, I watched something I've been wanting to see for a really long time, which was Abbott and Costello meet the Wolfman. Yeah. <laughs> uh, or no, I meant, I'm sorry, uh, meet Frankenstein. That's the one I watched. I'm pretty sure they have a separate one with the Wolfman. They do. Uh, I also saw Rodan. Uh, wanted I've been wanting to watch a lot of monster movies lately, and I started off my Halloween with my favorite Halloween movie, The Batman. <laughs> so uh, before we get started with the uh, Life Aquatic, what about you? What else have you been watching for October? Um, I think I started this, you know, Spooktober as they call it. I, I started it with uh, Speak No Evil, which is a Danish movie, I believe. Yeah, um, from last year, I had just kind of seen a cool poster about it so i wanted to watch it um definitely would recommend it i think a lot of people will get mad watching it. it's one of those 
um, horror movies that I think you're kind of like, I can't believe the parents are like that. But if, if I think if you're a parent, <laughs> it, if uh, it, it gets to you, you know what I mean? So that's, that's you know, that was a lot of the reviews that I kept reading was like, this is very uncomfortable as a parent. Anyways, that was the first movie that I watched. Um, so <clears throat> the second movie that I watched was another small kind of film that I had heard about that um, I think was actually on Letterboxd's list for movies that are horror movies that are the most mentioned this year. And it's called The Passenger, which is this Amazon uh, movie that I guess um, just has to do about a guy who works at a fast food restaurant. This is on Prime? Mm -hmm. Okay. He just loses it. Um, and it, I would say it's, it's horror aspects are probably a little bit more minimal. But, you know, again, we were having this conversation before the podcast that, like, mysteries, thrillers, horror, they all kind of blender into each Noir, other. Noir, so. even. Yeah, exactly. So, you know. <clears throat> and then um, another, just, just let me see. I guess it is another point before we really start talking about the Wes Anderson stuff, because I did watch other horror movies, but, like you said, I kind of watched a lot of other movies that are coming out this month that aren't necessarily horror movies, not all of them at least, and they just kind of were out, and you have the chance to be able to see them, but like you brought up before, I saw Anatomy of a Fall, that was um, in Hollywood, I got to be able to listen to the director talk about that with the lead actress, so that was really cool, um, I do think that's probably one of the best movies of the year, and um, I'm sure whenever uh, everybody else catches it, it, it'll get that kind of, I mean, it's, we've talked about for two last years, we've talked about the winner, you know, of Cannes, so this is that movie, so it, it, it lives up to the hype. Um, I saw The Royal Hotel, which is another cool tension, kind of, I think, counts for Spooktober. Uh, Australian movie. Huh, cutting it a little close there to our name, huh? Yeah, <laughs> yes, true. <laughs> um, Neon's been promoting this movie. Saw it, liked it, thought I could do more, but still would recommend watching it. And, uh, yeah, you already brought up When Evil Lurks. And, um, yeah, I, I also oh, I also just watched um, a couple of, like, The Strange Way of Life, which is Pedro Moldovar's short movie with um, Pedro Pascal and um, Ethan Hawke. Cool commercial, man. Was it I, this year's Power of the Dog? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I like it more <laughs> than Power of the Dog. But, you know, I... I uh, this year's Gay Cowboy movie? I was just mad that it wasn't longer, so, that, you know, I... That's my only complaint, really. Like, I can't really say that it was like, oh, man, I, I wish I was longer. Um, and then when I saw that, they were showing after it, The Human Voice, which I didn't know he had made a short film with Tilda Swinton. That was really cool, too. So that's Nice, nice. So we can get to the the main conversation here, uh, transitioning over back to Wes Anderson. It was nice to take a small break from his movies, but after watching The Life Aquatic again, just brought me back, man. I'm like, this is why we're doing this. Uh, I've had some some experience with Steve Zizou now for a while. This is a movie I've probably been watching now for about seven or eight years, I'd say. Uh, this isn't my first go around. I've probably seen this now maybe like five or six times. Um, the first time I saw it is because I was really getting into Wes Anderson and I started thinking like, Oh, what are these ones that people are saying are, like, so weird or whatever? Like, what's the big deal, you know? Uh, so this was the one that always sticks out. I do think that this is a, I guess you could say, controversial movie in his 
in his cabinet, which is funny because it's like, how could anything Wes Anderson makes be controversial, right? Um, but we were talking off mic about how this is really the one, I think, that hones in where people either love it or hate it. And I do think it's maybe because the irony in this movie is really, really heavy, like even more than even more than the Royal Tenenbaums, which always kind of felt like more heartfelt throughout the whole movie, you know, and like this one is really sad, really ironic. I do think that the word that gets thrown around about him, you know, quirky, it's like, yeah, this is the one. If you really want to pigeonhole one of them and call it, oh, the quirky one, like I, I would think it's Steve Zizou. But after this rewatch, I think this just confirmed for me, it's like, this is still upper tier, maybe top five, to, top five to seven range for me. Um, I just, I really, really like this movie. Everything about Wes Anderson that I like is here. Um, I think Bill Murray gives a wonderful performance. I think it's a really emotional performance. Um, a lot of feeling in this movie. Like, I feel like, yeah, there is a lot said, but there's a lot more that's like unsaid in this movie to me that really, like the quiet moments is what sits with me more than the, the actual dialogue. Um, but yeah, I, I really do like this one a lot. It just confirmed it for me on this rewatch that, yeah, man, Steve Zizou, I still think is pretty good. I don't get what the big deal is. <laughs> How do you feel about this one? Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> I think I always kind of, we've been, talk, we've been talking about him. Oh, obviously, kind of connecting back with all his short films that came out, um, you know, last month. Saw those two, but... Uh, you know when when you see like the French Dispatch now, and you always like I wish they were just three movies. Yeah, so good at being able to do all of those things that you're like, he's the only one that draws me into those worlds and convinces me that this is how this world works, and he he's the rule maker. And I think that Steve Zizou is the almost the best one that has to do with that aspect because I mean. There's every every like the fictional world building. Yeah, and like the fact that you could also get you know he does his little cardboard cutouts and makes the animals look like that and you know and the sets like I I just think he's having the most fun here, and I also think like in terms of this is even before knowing what the movie is I I think even the attire here the whole time really stands out and I think it's the fact that. It's it's the beating is something very simple, but I I, I think it's like again it, it makes the the characters once you dive into the movie and kind of get to know them and his crew and everything they start to kind of stand for the symbolism that all of these his crew members are a derivative of him or like all are with his team or something so even like the small things that you think might are just kind of dumb or quirky like why is he wearing an orange hat kind of also have like this meaning and it's because they're like maritime like that you know brotherhood yeah like they're brothers at arms you know they they risk their lives out on the sea <laughs> um you know i think it's funny that you brought up these two points about uh the film because in my notes these were uh two things that i really wanted to hone in on so the stop motion work is done by henry Selick, who directed oh, yeah. uh the nightmare before christmas let's not get it twisted not tim burton right <laughs> uh but henry Selick, and i do think that Kind of like Steve Zizou, this movie brings like that same kind of feeling, right? So it's like it's co-written by Noah Baumbach because Owen Wilson is no longer writing anymore. 
uh, I wanted to look it up. I always wondered exactly what it was. Uh, we might we may have talked about it slightly in other episodes, but it is just uh, his movie career really taking off. You know, it's like he's in the Shanghai Nights sequel with uh, Jackie Chan, right? And uh, Cars is not too long after this, right? Uh, Meet the Fockers. So he started becoming uh, a Zoolander and all that kind of stuff had come out, right? Meet the Parents. So he had become much more of a household name in, in one of the... J-Lo movies, right? Uh, no, that's that's, that's, that's really on, current. Yeah, that's really current. current. Yeah. But you're not far off on saying like some shitty romantic comedy. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that I'm like, I can't remember. Uh, this time but yeah, he just got really busy. And he also said that he felt like acting was more freeing, that he had more of an ability to improvise because a lot of Owen Wilson's dialogue in his movies that are not Wes Anderson's are heavily improvised. So I do think that uh, maybe his star power as an actor is bigger than it is as a writer, you know, where he can come in and be like, oh, no, trust me, like, I'm going to say this instead. And, it, you know, just a little more freedom than he might get working with Wes Anderson. Marley and me, sorry. Yeah, yeah. Marley and me, you, me and Dupree, you know, Marmaduke, uh, Drill Bit Taylor, the classics, yeah, right? Yeah. yeah. How do you know? Sheesh. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that's like, oh, my God, I got to look at all these. Like, look at this. Hey, man. Yeah, Starsky and Hutch. Starsky and Hutch, yeah. <laughs> I really like that good. one. That I'll go to bat for that one. I like Starsky and Hutch <laughs> quite a bit. Um, but yeah, so I do think that just the world that he inhabits outside of Wes Anderson movies, uh, get your bag, dog, get right? Your yeah, <laughs> I guess there's nothing wrong with that. It's just not exactly what you would hope. Uh, when he works with Wes Anderson, he's comparable to like an old Hollywood star, right? You're like, I don't know. Maybe this guy's one of the best working actors today. But then when you're watching Marmaduke, you're like, nah, I don't know. Marlon Brando. <laughs> you yeah, know exactly. what I mean? Or who was Montgomery Clift. They, excuse me? No, no. Yeah, no. Uh, and then for the costumes and the entire insta- attire and things of those nature, uh, I had brought up in the last episode that he worked with the same crew for the first three movies. And then and Steve Zizou... Uh, new members are introduced so new costume designer and her name is uh, Melina Cananero and she is an Italian costume designer she has been around for a very long time she used to work with Stanley Kubrick she worked on uh, A Clockwork Orange and The Shining so yeah <laughs> you know and she uh, she started with Wes on Steve Zizou and she has worked with him as well on Grand Budapest Asteroid City and French Dispatch uh and Darjeeling Limited, I believe. I don't think she did... Obviously, she didn't do the uh, the animated movies. And I don't think she did Moonrise Kingdom either. But she also worked with Sofia Coppola here and there. So she's kind of a legend, you know? Uh, so some of these iconic looks that we're looking at as we're watching the movie, like the PJs in the red hat or the, the, uh, the wetsuits that they yeah. all wear, right? You know, a nice little touch I like about the red hats is that they don't all have the same exact one. Like uh, Vikram, the Indian cameraman, obviously wears a turban. I guess I shouldn't say obviously. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Wolodarsky wears like the one that's like the roll up, like like canvas beanie. Mm -hmm. And a funny thing I learned about the guy who plays Wolodarsky is that it was almost the director, James Gray, the guy who made Ad Astra Mm -hmm. and Lost City of Z. So that's kind of what I meant, too, about, like, this uh, Wes Anderson kind of having his own little crew of filmmakers that are working on this, you know? Like, uh, 
I, I didn't get to see much into how Noah Baumbach got recruited into this, but I do think that's really interesting that there's this one-off relationship. Because from here, I don't know from here on out, but the next one is Roman Coppola and Jason Schwartzman, and they have been frequent writers as well with uh, Wes Anderson. But this one-off with Noah Baumbach is... Uh, I wonder how much he's really bringing to this, you know? Like, not to discredit him in any way. I'm sure he did bring a lot. But the transition doesn't seem too far off from Owen Wilson, right? Am I crazy for saying that? No, no, no. I mean, no. Like, I don't think this would be that much of a different movie if Owen Wilson had written it, too. That's, uh, that is tough to say. I guess because... Like, Obviously, I'm just reaching here. It's but. hard to say just because in prior episodes, I had made a comparison between I think that there's a lot to do with them. You know, Baumbach and West, and then I didn't know up until doing the research for this episode that he wrote, wrote one with them. I didn't even know that they'd ever worked together. So then I'm kind of like, I ah, would... Ah, Twin Flames. I would, <laughs> I would go off to say, based off me reaching, is that Noah learned a lot from West here. But I do think that the fact that he's... West is willing to give him the same credit that he later gives, you know, or that he earlier gave Owen Wilson, and then also gave, you know, later Roman Coppola. I do think just because of the kind of person West is, it does seem like that's just the level of collaboration he seeks. So that's just based, like, that would be based on my assumption. But um, I do think there is a, like, I think that's why I was saying, like, this is the start of the quirkiness. Yeah. Which is what people have an issue with, like, you know, when we watched White Noise, for example. People could mm-hmm. not get over the quirkiness. So who is to say that the quote-unquote quirkiest he's ever been was when he was at Noah Bamba? And you have this Italian designer. Yeah, right. sounds so extra, but then it's, I, I do think it elevated the material because he had already mastered in, in you know, um, in Rushmore. He already mastered... Um, my Bill Murray's like in the, kind of in the emotional range that he had at that point and I think that just based and you know we have Angela Houston here again because we're watching it and I do think like he already learned from the two prior movies how he could handle their type of acting and the type of characters that he could write with them and I think all of this only works because of that yeah you know I will say the more I think about it now that the emotional core of this film which is tied to Steve Zizou being this really tragic character who's going through loss while also having this discovery of, well, not this discovery, but the finally confronting the fact that he has a son, right? Because it is later revealed that he has known about this son the entire time, mm-hmm. which kind of makes Steve Zizou your uh, typical Wes Anderson character, which is this charismatic, uh, this charismatic character. And I say that to say that like these these main characters of Wes Anderson's truly do fit the bill of like a character, you know, like Steve Zizou is someone that doesn't exist in the real world, but he does fit into like that literary box or like he's like an extension of like the Tenenbaums or Max Fisher, you know, like this really exceptional person, or at least he was at one point. Right. Um, But just the emotional core of the film, I would say that that is something that Noah Baumbach has, really perfected like the family drama right so i could see where maybe that is that in play here um and is part of where he hones that and then i I will say the ending spoiler alert uh with owen wilson's character dying kind of uh in that wes anderson way where it's like really quick kind of tragic but also slightly funny yeah um (laughs) like 
it was the dog last time, right? And this time it's Owen Wilson. Like, Buckley got smushed at the end of Teddy Bombs. It's just funny how it just happens, though. And then he kind of talks about, he's like, well, you know, in the same aspect you're talking about, Owen Wilson's line when that happens, but we were getting so ahead of ourselves. But it just really proves the point is that, like, um, he's like, I could have done this or I could have done that, but it wouldn't have made a difference. And then he just kind of dies, you know? But then it's like, when you're looking at it, you just see this tragedy and it is still kind of funny, but then it just all of a sudden, you know, becomes the reality of the film. And then that's when the sorrowness, sadness does set in where you're like, oh, I get it. Everybody here is, was just searching for something. Everybody here, they're in, they're underwater searching, but they're actually searching. For yeah, the water's a metaphor for life, yeah. right? Oh. Yeah, like, I do think that, well, let's just get to it now since you brought it up. I do think that that's really the main theme of the movie, um, kind of similar to some, it's Wes Anderson. Saying it's kind of similar is derivative at this point, you know, like as much as his movies can be seen as derivative, Solo is kind of talking about them because they are all about the same thing deep down, which is like this group of people who are looking for a family and the Zisu team is these people who are like these outcasts and weirdos who come from many different walks of life and all four corners of the earth to... (laughs) to like ex I don't know explore right but really to kind of figure out who they are um and I I can't help but feel that this has got to be something that Wes Anderson feels deep down in life about himself and like even though he makes these movies I still think that he kind of questioned the like what is all of this and that's that's something that's in Asteroid City even like still in 2023 this is a a concept of life that Wes Anderson still doesn't seem to have a full grasp on is like what is all of this right and I do think that after the extremely highs, high highs of Royal Tenenbaums and then the the low and the bringing him down to earth with Steve Zizou and the, the box office crashing and the critical reception being really awful for this movie, although it's been reclaimed already, right? Um, he kind of reminds me of Steve Zizou. Like as almost if like the movie industry has warped him into this old man at this point where he's already kind of looking at it like, well, my best days are behind me, you know? And, like, the Steve Zizou crew is kind of like this group of people who has continuously worked with him. Right. So I just kind of feel like they're all about him, but, like, Steve Zizou might be the character that is is able to convey, like, Wes Anderson's feelings about the whole mess of it all, you know? I think very similar to... I might have said this in another episode. It's because I think all great directors come from the same process of thought. It's like um, uh, cinema can tell all these specific stories, but at the end of the day, they're human stories, right? And at the end of the day, there's human elements stuck in all of them. So I think Wes understands that the most that you can make an animated movie about a fox. And at the end of the day, the fox's struggles are just going to... He's doing everything once you personify that fox to fit in, to be happy, to be, you know have a good life but what does that mean and um you could make this crew of underwater you could do it in after city where they're you know these smart kids at the end of the day everybody's commonality is humans um and this kind of goes back to we're talking about also uh, when people don't seem to see themselves in movies unless it's literally the same race as you but i think that wes anderson understands that um we all are human and are searching the same validation and even when we say that we're not it's through some type of trauma or there's something that needs to be addressed and I think like you said who knows if that's something he's enamored by 
the fact that you know every human does all of these things for x y reasons but the real reasons are obviously just always bare bone the same um and i think obviously because we've sat here and talked about so many of his movies it starts to you see the thorough line and maybe that's why some people think he's a one-trick pony you know because they're like just you keep talking about the same thing and you just keep showing me but is that not life you know yeah and it's kind of like you said there's directors who some of the best have a uh, heavily recurring themes throughout their films because it's like the I think for them it's kind of like this is the big the the big theme in their life you know like for yeah. Wes Anderson it's like the searching the searching and like we talked about in the other episodes almost like the settling of like accepting life for what it is as opposed to what you want it to be and then like I think the biggest proponent of this is Christopher Nolan no matter what his movies are about, they always go back to time and the importance of time and how it's perceived, how we see it, how you can use it in movies to tell stories, you know, like whether it's Tenant or whether it's Dunkirk or The Prestige or Memento, like all those movies are about time. I, maybe you could take out the Batman movies because those are a whole other thing, you know, like they're not his original concepts. He's working within a certain a franchise and certain framework, but all of his original films Time, time, time. Interstellar, time, you know? <laughs> yeah, and then, and then obviously because he's enamored by what that means, right? And it's kind of, uh, you know, we've talked about um, Wes Anderson's transformation as a person in between these movies and, you know, Bottle Rocket and even Rushmore, be like, this is a Texas born and bred kid, right? But then even in his own ideology of writing stories, like, if I want to explore the world and have all these different takes, then what can I do? And we've kind of talked about how he's European-minded now. And I think it almost has to do with the same thing he's talking about. Like, I can be this thing that's the polar opposite of what I was and still be the same person. And all it will do is open me up to different stories of, like, what people do or go against or all these ideas of people doing all of this stuff to ideally just be happy. Yeah, I mean, he's kind of, like, Wes Anderson is the Ned Plimpton of his life, you know? Like, he's, I maybe I should have just stayed in Kentucky, <laughs> you know? Uh, I will say that uh, we should probably do the synopsis, and then we can just talk about some of our favorite parts of the movie, the overall, everything, you know, the technical aspects, just the things we really, really like. So let me go ahead and pull this up here. Um... I did I did see that they have this on Criterion. Do you know how many of Wes Anderson's movies are on Criterion? I believe it's the first four. I know that. I thought um, Darjeeling and also Moonrise were on there. They haven't done... I don't think they've done Fantastic Mr. Fox. Uh-uh. No. I wonder why. Oh, well, WALL-E hey. is their first animated movie, right? No, that's the first Disney one. Um, is Isle of Dogs... A criterion? I wonder. That'd be... That's interesting. Okay. But let me pull up... Go ahead and pull up the synopsis. I don't know why I don't already have it. <laughs> uh, renowned oceanographer Steve Zizou has sworn vengeance upon a rare shark that devoured a member of his crew. In addition to his regular team, he is joined on his boat by Ned, a man who believes that Zizou is to be his father, and Jane, a journalist pregnant by a married man. They travel the sea, all too often running into pirates and perhaps... More traumatically, various figures from Zisu's past, including his estranged wife, Eleanor. Uh, that is, yes, what the movie is about, but there's just a lot of 
emotional depth here, like I said. Oh, look, Noah Baumbach's actually in the movie. <laughs> there you oh, go. Really? I, didn't, I missed that. I didn't yeah. even notice that yesterday when I watched, or any of the other times. Uh, uh, Dave, to answer your question, they've done Budapest, Moonrise Kingdom, Fantastic Mr. Fox, The Darjeeling Limited, The Life Aquatic, The Royal Tenenbaums, Rushmore, and Bottle Rocket. Oh, so they've done almost all of them. Almost all of them. They just need to do French Dispatch and Asteroid City. And Isle, yeah, they didn't do Isle of Dogs. They even they knew it was mid. They even they knew it was think. mid. <laughs> uh, yeah. Is that it? Yeah. Yeah, that is it. I wonder if any of them have the short, uh, the short films. You know how sometimes Criterion will cut you a nice little break? Like when I bought The Killing, it came with Killer's Kiss on it. Oh, you know what? Actually, I, I, I do think this is a good point just because I'm... You know, Criterion's another, you know, just, like, it's not a website, but, you know, I don't even know what to call it. Like, I guess companies that really, really does shit, like, that we enjoy, but... Loves cinema. Is that what you're basically there. getting at? No, but is it that Preserves I, I like... the art form? Yeah. I, I think they do the most to try to, you know, champion what we champion on here. But their description of like Wes Anderson because they have all these like the Houston natives exquisitely designed often hilarious explorations of family life friendship and the foibles of youth have influenced a generation of independent filmmakers which I think that's just like that is what all of the movies ideally have to do about but I do think uh, someone like Noah Baumbach I, you have these ideas of themes um, that you'd want to present in a certain way but it, it's the art of cinema can allow you to do so much and sometimes you know some people choose to use it to its full extent some people don't in certain degrees and i think wes anderson chooses to use every aspect of filmmaking like to its fullest extent so i wanted to start off by saying now that we discussed the synopsis and we can just really get into anything from here um is the scope and the scale of this movie and what it's going to lead to uh, because of the success of Royal Tenenbaums and the money it makes, he's obviously allowed a lot more freedom than he was previously. So I think he makes really good use of it. Cinematographer Robert Yeoman, who's been there since the beginning, uh, talked about how, kind of like Spielberg with Jaws, it's like a lot of this is filmed on the water. Um, crazy shoot, because anytime the water is involved and you're on like these like islands in Europe and stuff like that, it's like the crew goes a little mad. Everybody starts going kind of getting kind of that zisu brain you know it's like they all start getting a little crazy eye because it's really intense to shoot out on the water and there's all these other extra safety precautions that come into play uh but i like the idea that wes anderson has taken this leap into like doing something that could be seen almost like an adventure movie i mean it is right they go on they go across the world in these ships um i'll save this for later but he his next film is actually like a road movie you know it's like Wes Anderson on a journey and it's like I do like that the films get bigger and bigger and I do like the I think that with his direction in this movie it steps up like there's a couple of action sequences in this film and they're very reminiscent of like what you would see in Bottle Rocket but like the fully baked version of it you know like when they're storming the island to get back Bill for the But that, that also that stuff's so good, you know. That also reminded me of like you know when we were watching Rushmore, like why does Max play look like they could be a movie? Yeah, it's like those certain things that made that play look so cool are now set into full motion into the movie, you know. So that like that is one of my favorite scenes when they start to get them back. So I I I feel like I'll speak just for myself here that I flip flop a lot on this movie between like 
do I really like it because I think it's one of his better stories or do I really like it because of all of the technical uh, craftsmanship and stuff like that that's on display and I don't know if this is for like for me if I'll ever be able to really distinguish like what is it about this movie but I just love all of the craftsmanship that's on display here from like the old nature documentaries that you would see uh, that they like they, the crew watches or like just the one that opens up the movie, right? Like the movie opens up with the movie and you're watching it and you're like, oh, fucking cinema, baby. Like, I just love these small short films that he's made inside of the movie. Uh, the stop motion stuff, right? Like the Henry Selleck work that's on display here. Uh, the Belafonte and how they're able to use the camera to, uh, you know, the long tracking shot showing all the quarters, but then also some of the scenes of them going throughout the, the Belafonte. Like, he likes to smoke up top on the ship, right? And, like, you'll see him walk through the entire thing, and you'll see this lived-in world that's, like, it feels like a dollhouse, but you know it's not. And it's just, it's just everything I love about his movies, you know? Like, I just feel like this is where, for me at least, I'm like, no, this is where it gets really, really good, you know? Like, in terms of the craftsmanship, like, I know it's there in the first three, but from here to like Grand Budapest, which I think is like the masterpiece of him uh, in terms of craftsmanship. Like, I think this is where that starts, you know? It's because it's getting a lot bigger of a budget now than he does in the other ones. So like for me, just that kind of stuff that's on display here is just maybe why I like this movie so much. Like the fluorescent jellyfish, the jaguar shark at the end, right? Like uh, the actual submarine that they use. <laughs> I mean, I mean, just the, the, the jaguar shark I was just saying, like, this last viewing, like, what it meant, as opposed to just being, you know, the quirkiness of what the jaguar shark looks like, but what it means to the story, and, um, I, I just, I really end up just thinking, like, um, it's supposed to be fun to make, and it does always seem like he's having fun, but all of this stuff is all extra things that are actually really hard to do, like, I think that I like that you brought up that um it looks like the play sets, but then you end up getting shots inside of it. So you know it's two different things that he built, you know? It's like he found the perfect place that matches exactly or built the perfect place that matches exactly what he explained to you. But there's also this exterior view of it that you're kind of like, oh, I know I'm in a movie. Yeah. But it's like the fact that he could play with that. And um, that's where like, I agree with you because I directors are supposed to or directors that are you know known for ages later all stand out for things and no one's gonna stand out for doing what he does he's the only one that does it you know love it or hate it the the repetitiveness of his style i do think that like these images in this movie are much more composed and framed and uh methodical with how they are Put on display and how Robert Yeomans ca captures them like this is a fucking beautiful movie man these uh ocean landscapes you know that we see on this beautiful island that I believe is probably somewhere like in Portugal <laughs> I know this is like a fictional island or whatever um but it's just these like magical landscapes you know and like when you're out on the ocean and it looks like Jaws because it's just shot like I don't know it must have been shot on like the same film or something you know it's like these colors are so vibrant the world is so like rich, you know, like all of it feels lived in as well. I think like the Belafonte 
is a really good set piece because it just feels like an actual ship that makes sense even though it has all these like outlandish things <laughs> you know like the the music recording booth and the lab and mm -hmm. the sauna and things like that you know it's like it looks like this little tiny ship but it's got this whole ecosystem inside of it or like you know we're seeing steve zizou on the balloon and stuff like that the small chopper it's just like what is all of this you know it's like wes anderson does this good job of giving you so much exposition but also he leaves you in a he leaves you in this state where you're kind of uh he kind of leaves out the things that are like who cares how he got the money to have all this stuff you know it's like yes he has like the rich in-laws and stuff like that but you never really question where any of it comes from it's just kind of and i think that's where it becomes like a little bit like more literary like a book where you're not kind of nitpicking every single aspect of the oh well, how did he get this oh that doesn't make sense you know it's like just kind of go with it and i don't mean that in any kind of uh like a slight where it's like just turn your brain off and go with it like i think that's one of the strong suits of his movies is that he he can give you enough exposition in a way that is entertaining at least in our opinion right because like, i know a lot of people i think that's one of their big gripes right is like those small narrative sequences where he here's this guy he does this blah 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 right like that doesn't work for some people but for me and we said this in the previous episodes like i think it's a really efficient way of getting it all out of the way so that you can just live with these characters you know and like i think they do that in plays as well like here's what you need to know boom you're in the story with these people you know yeah a lot of the complaints i think that i do hear is people who do always kind of um i would say live live by the rules or enjoy by the rules as opposed to here like you know you're supposed to show me not tell me but there's certain things that you know forefronters of style understand more about human elements and it's like i i do think wes anderson's kind of understood that there is no reason you should need to see that that doesn't change or do anything and you know the addition of like you said the little the balloon or something like that i think always ends up being like a showmanship of like look at all these I, ideally I, what I do think is creatively it stands for a lot of it stands for a lot of unique shots so like if you're in an air balloon you know it's like now I could do a shot in the air or something like that so I do always end up thinking it has various uses for it like we just saw the shot of him and Kate Blanchett in the balloon and it's perfectly symmetrical and like look even from way up there I can still do <laughs> like I can still get this perfect shot even from a balloon looking down exactly and I think it's like if, if, you know, Steve Zizou has a globe on top of his ship, if he has the helicopter, that's, I think, what makes it feel lived in. You know, this isn't like this story just started or in the beginning. Like, no, you know, Steve Zizou would have a kid that he had a couple of years ago because he's been doing this for a long time. Or he would be, why wouldn't he be well off or whatever? Yeah, like this is a man already at the end of his, at the end of his story, kind of, right? Yeah. That's to be determined. Uh, I do think it's funny that kind of me kind of a meta aspect here is like uh, I do think that the character of Steezy Zoo is the same age as Bill Murray in real life. So when he's like, "I'm only fifty two, goddamn it!" Like, why does everybody keep asking me if this is my last <laughs> adventure? <laughs> you know? I'm only fifty two. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, we've also talked about before how a recurring theme in Wes Anderson's work is like the coming of age and how you never stop coming of age, right? And I do think that Steezy Zoo also. 
because of the acceptance of the loss of his best friend and then the loss of his son and the coming to terms with some of his rivals like Jeff Goldblum, you know, like uh, that touching shot at the end. It's the, it's the famous shot that everybody knows from the movie of them all crammed into the submarine, uh, which is a little easier than you would expect to shoot. Robert Yeoman says, because Wes Anderson is so meticulous with, with these kind of things. That's like, I know we're going to do this and we're not going to change it. Therefore, I only have to light it this way. And he's not going to ask me to start doing something crazy and like, oh, we got to change everything. Right. But anyways, this um, really emotional shot at the end of the movie that is like the culmination of everything that's we've seen over the past two hours is like the the like accepting of the loss and also coming to terms with like how his life is going to be moving forward and I do think it almost has an optimistic ending even though it is about like accepting like that loss in his life you know like Steve Zizou's gone through some tragic stuff he just loses his son and his best friend within months of each other you know and like at a time in his life where he's like borderline about to off himself you know like Steve Zizou seems like he's right on the edge of I wouldn't be surprised if he jumped off the ship is what I'm trying to say, you know? Yeah, no, it's... I think, again, the theme here addresses like acceptance and, you know, acceptance of your failures. Um, but also, at a certain point, knowing you can't rewrite the past because that's like, you know, Angelica Houston's character, there's a lot... Like, sometimes he wants to... Similar to the Royal Tenenbaums, right? Where they always kind of like he is she a similar is the, character to royal she, she's the stone so they always go back to her like in terms of and they end up needing her for the help and everything but you know they weren't exactly the ideal partner so they're very complicated and they always kind of allude to that when they talk about the past that they have and um by the time that we see our character here like you said he's lived in and kind of regrets all of those things so we're kind of seeing somebody who does end up accepting where he is whether that's in a knowing it's all his fault whether that's a good place or a bad place and in in this movie through a lot of tragedy it took him literally like we talked about the theme here finally searching and finding the spotted shark to find the acceptance so then he's like oh look i am loved all these people care about me. It's oh, very similar to Moby Dick, you know? It's like, this is Wes Anderson's Moby Dick. Yeah, which <laughs> I, I, kind of ties back to what I'm saying. Like, I do think this movie kind of just, even at the time, I didn't know that it had done bad with the critics. That They um, hated this. This bombed. That it, it does seem like everybody just didn't really think that he had put any more effort between just trying to be stylish here. And I just end up, the more that I see it, I'm like, there's... The movie stands out to me visually in my head because of, you know, the stuff that I remember in the scenes. But actually the story and what it's getting at is a very human element story that I don't think you would necessarily... Like you said, when you first tried to see this movie, I thought it was just going to be a comedy the whole way through. But oh, I thought like, this would be laugh out loud, one of the funniest movies I've ever seen. The first time I watched it, you know? And it is, and it is funny. Like, you know, but it's like, I just thought... In that dry, ironic, Wes Anderson way, the not of, uh... It's not as funny as Tenenbaums, I would say, like, as in, t in terms of, like, uh, jokes, you know? But it's, like, the dry irony. Mm hmm So, I, I do think this is, um... Diving into the same themes that he had, did, like, that he touched upon in the movie before. But, um, almost a little bit more... Just sad. Because he does end up, like you said... Lost, lost his best friend and also 
his son, which, I mean, during the whole movie, but the whole thing with his name is really funny, right? That he wants to change his name to... Uh, <laughs> yeah. Or he Kingsley. Does, to Kingsley. <laughs> you know, who, who that fuck is Kingsley? <laughs> Willem Dafoe. I like what he tells you, and he's like, well, if I had any say in it, we would have named you Kingsley. He's a Kingsley Zisu. <laughs> and then he changes his name. But it's like that ends up being the same, like this... This kid who obviously always looked up to him and his mom had told him that was his dad, he always wanted his acceptance, you know, and then when he finally did get it, it got taken away, but it's that, that at the, through a tragedy like that, at least there's some comfort to him that knowing that he ended up writing that wrong in some way, because he, he, like, you know, they talk about it, that he knew, you knew I was alive since then, and I, I just like how in this uh, world, it's like a rumor. Like everybody knows that it probably is his kid and he kind of just denies it. And again, just ends up establishing the world that we live in. And you know, Steve Zizou is a renowned ocean explorer, you know? He's James, the James Cameron. Yeah, seriously. <laughs> oh, he, you know, he's the Jacques Cousteau, right? We have, we've yet to mention that that is who yeah. he's based off of, which is a real life oceanographer and explorer and probably one of the great, uh, educators slash entertainers right the he fit he's a role that we don't really have nowadays like you know like <laughs> the closest we have to somebody like that who is like a public figure would maybe be like neil degrasse tyson and even he's more of a celebrity than he is of a actual explorer adventurer you know like we don't really have anyone like this anymore like the carl sagans or the jacques cousteaus or those uh the volcanologists from fire of love like how they were celebrities in their time you know yeah uh, it's kind we of people going in tin cans so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah that was a stupid ocean game yeah. I, I was gonna say yeah you know steve zoo would advise against going to watch the titanic and uh, that's how i know he's real the, yeah i guess you know apt apt comparison james cameron is probably the closest thing we have an explorer who makes movies yeah, right? yeah. in his spare time uh, also, of fictional creatures that don't really exist, right? Uh-huh. There you go. <laughs> the, whether it be the Navi or the snowy white mongoose, right? <laughs> <laughs> um, cast. Always got to mention the cast in a Wes Anderson film. Okay. So, Blank Kate. Shit. Yeah. <laughs> I, I do. <laughs> Soundbite that. Market 5302. Add in the quick. How have we never mentioned that before? That's one of my favorite <laughs> sound bites. That along with the new uh, Donald Trump. Silence of the Lambs. Yeah, right? Blank, a lot of bangers. Blank, I do think. Blanchard. We definitely need to step up the sound bite game because there's just too many good ones that Should've are had that one. movie, movie involved. <laughs> uh, but yeah, Kate Blanchett, like you said, Lydia Tarr herself is in this movie. Uh, Jeff Goldblum, which I think he plays like he just plays a funny like rival to Steve Zissou, right? Because he's like the polar opposite of him. Uh, let's see, we got Owen Wilson, of course, right? Uh, and a recurring character, well, not character actor, on this show because we did City of God. Uh, and I believe it's like Seo George mm-hmm. or Seo Jorge. Pele? Uh, yeah. He played Pele Dos Santos. <laughs> <laughs> Which huh. I was like, okay, is that really supposed to be like Pele the soccer player? Are you serious? Uh, but he has a vital role in this film, not so much as a character, but as a... <laughs> Uh, part of the narrative structure, which is like these small interludes between scenes that have these acoustic David Bowie songs that are sang uh, in Portuguese. 
And I will say it adds a very unique touch to the soundtrack that we don't have in any of his other work. Yeah. And I do really like it. I do think that he got it so perfect here that it's like don't don't continue doing this. But wow, what a what a nice touch for this movie, right? Like something so unique that you don't you don't really see in too many other movies, honestly. The soundtrack God took a chance and it worked out, bro. He, <laughs> yeah. He, he knew he just always gets it right. Uh <laughs> His first uh, film without a Rolling Stones song. That's interesting. I wonder if I wonder why. Did, did it, uh, it couldn't have been because they used it all on David Bowie songs because when another person sings a cover, you don't have to pay the same royalties or whatever for using the song. So I wonder why it didn't. I, I do think a Rolling Stones song would have fit in here perfectly, yeah. right? Uh, but interesting touch. What about our... Is this the recurring character owner of the club? In his real life in Texas, is he in this one? I'm gonna have to check the. Um, I, I can go ahead and check right now. But uh, I wanted to bring up: Have you ever seen a movie called Strange Wilderness with Steve Zahn? It's a Happy Gilmore or Happy Madison production. It's like set in the okay. '70s or '80s. They do like a nature research show, just like the ones that Steve Zizou makes. But they're looking for Bigfoot. It's a really so. bad, like it's bad, but. Yeah, no, no. It would make a nice double feature because they're kind of uh, existing in the same world. Yeah. No, no, I never, I never seen that. Um, I'm sorry. What was the thing that you asked me? Oh, if the if the guy who owned the cafe, yeah, is in this one. I don't believe. I didn't so. catch this. Yeah, like that's. Just, I think I was gonna say this is the first one he's not in. I, I think he this. Uh, I think he's in the one after this. Uh, yeah, they're not. They are not in here. It doesn't seem like it. You know what's funny is we were talking about... No, I don't see them in here. Sue George, we talked about him. Like He's also in a documentary where he does play Pelly. Are you serious? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's <laughs> what Wes Anderson called it, dude. Yeah. He kind of looks like Pelly. Um, <laughs> so, the cast, going back to it, obviously Bill Murray. It's like, do I really even need to say anything? I'm sure many more people have said smarter things than me about Bill Murray's performance. But I do think that... Um, this is possibly his best role. I will say that. Uh, I need to see, you know, Lost in Translation, maybe, whatever. But Dr. Groundhog, dude. <laughs> <laughs> no, dude, his character in Caddyshack, best character. Oh, man. Um, Ghostbusters. Yeah, Bill Murray, come on. Amazing in this movie. But to me, to me my favorite little side character is obviously Willem Dafoe. Just so, so funny as oh. Klaus, right? Um... I don't think that this yeah. movie is really about the ensemble cast as much as it is some of the other ones, you know? Like, I, I know we do have a nice, a nice like, maybe five, five-man team going on here, but I don't think that it's as, it's as good as, like, um, Royal Tenenbaums or as strong as the three performances in the Darjeeling Limited after. So maybe that's another reason why this movie doesn't... Uh, hit as strongly for other people but I still think that this is a pretty strong cast I just think that it's because there's a lot of background characters I was, like the Zisu team they have their they have quite a bit of dialogue but it's they're not characters they're, they're background pieces. that's what I was going to say is I hear because the movie's even titled what it is you know everybody does feel like secondary actors too. this is so, more about one person than any of his other movies are and so it's I don't think it's detriment I think 
the cast just isn't asked to do as much when it comes to the, I guess, realizations or quote unquote tropes of the movie that keep it emotionally, you know, going to the next stages. I mean, whether, you know, Kate Blanchett's character here with the whole pregnancy and being in love with her son, just, I do enjoy because there's a whole other humanity spoken there, but I don't think it necessarily is even instrumental to the story. It just kind of ends up feeling like things have to happen to Steezy Zoo so he can come to the accordances and acceptance at the end of the movie. I will say with this, with the last three movies, uh, Wes Anderson definitely has some weird vibes and feelings about relationships, right? Like, yeah. at least in movies, I'm sure, who's to, who's to say what he's like in real life, right? But at least in movies, he really does explore the idea of like strange relationships that have romantic ties, you know, mm-hmm. like, like a teacher and an, a teacher and a kid and an adult in a love triangle, or a, not really, Suppose, you know, yeah, or a stepbrother and a stepsister, uh, or a, a brother and an adopted sister, or even in this one, you know, like this old man and his son fighting for the affection of a pregnant woman who has her own shit going on, who. You know, it's just like he he really does explore the idea of like let's get weird with romance. You yeah. know, uh, but it, I I'm a broken record here. It's like it's effective. It works for me. I don't really have uh, too much more to say about this movie. I I don't know. This one for me is more of a. It, it's harder to talk about. I think it's because so much of the fun of this movie is the unspoken for me. So it's not one where I really feel like. I want to dive into it so much, nay, no pun intended, by talking about, like, oh, the characters and this and this and that. Like, for me, this one really is fun for the the action, the set pieces, the uh, the craftsmanship and all that, which I think can only be really, truly appreciated through watching. Agreed. I mean, I do think this one is... I do find it really fun, too. You know, I just... I was thinking about when he... Oh, like, uh, his Owen Wilson's character is going to join and he's like, he doesn't even know how to hold the boom oh yeah, yeah like, there's just so many small things like that that I'm I just I, I did find myself laughing at this a lot more than I remembered and um, the, the Royal Tenenbaums is I think they're like they have equal type of humor so I do end up just I did end up feeling like this was just a he was in a certain zone for these two movies and I think you know I haven't seen Darjeeling so maybe it's three but I do I really like that he started leaning into the things that he did because that's the only way we get what we get now and like I I really thoroughly enjoy Asteroid City you know and I, I think it's just a more him honing in on this craft you know here and having the years of experience that he has now to make something like Asteroid City or make something as experimental at the end of the day as um the French Dispatch. Yeah, I, I love this movie because of the, like I said, the scope of it. Wes Anderson becoming a bigger director in terms of scale, like what he can do. It's like having this adventure movie out on the ocean with pirates and action set pieces and uh, stop motion and, you know, perfect cinematography and symmetry, <laughs> you know, and like really cool soundtrack. Like I do think that although all of his movies feel like he made them because he wanted to, I do think after the success of Royal Tenenbaums and the high that he's on, that he really gets to do the, like, this is for me, you know? I made this movie for an audience of one, as Denis Villeneuve would say. Yeah. <laughs> um, 
Yeah, and I do think it's painfully funny. It's like more irony humor than it is just straight up uh, laugh out loud comedy like maybe some of his other movies could be seen as but uh i really really like this one and like uh, i'll say the the last small touch that i just find deeply funny is the uh the bondsman stooge how he becomes like hey the pirates want me because i speak filipino (laughs) that that yeah and then at the end like when he tells uh, jeff goldblum like yeah we stole your shit like because he's part like, he becomes endeared to Steve Zissou, you know? Like, he's supposed to be there to manage the money and everything. But by the end, like, he's one of them, you know? The pirate thing is, because I had forgotten about that. And, and the whole, like, um, the, him knowing uh, Tagalog. I had just completely forgotten about that bit, honestly. <laughs> it's so funny to me. It's like, okay, they're giving him back and they're taking Bill instead. <laughs> oh, man. Uh, it's been fun to revisit this movie. Throw on your red cap. Grab your uh, 70s blue prom tux colored attire <laughs> and uh, throw on Steve Zizou, man. Get your ass to the beach. Yeah, man. Get those Adidas on stock X. Yeah, ocean. Beach. Those would be hard, huh? Oh, yeah. The Zizou I pulled Adidas. up in the Steve Zizou's. <laughs> the gazelles? The Zizou gazelles? No, um, yeah, I think uh, at the end when we talk about, you know, where they sit, I, I end up feeling like this might be on my top five for sure. And I think it's just, it's. I, similar to how much I like sci-fi, I think I just equally as much like underwater stuff, and I know there's a lot of stop motion here, like there's real animals, but it's the just like an admiration for ocean exploration. So it's just always a cool subject to me. And yeah, they don't make enough movies about the ocean, whether it's in the ocean, underwater, you know, like just <laughs> Pacific Rim. Come on. God. you know like i just watched the movie underwater last night the Kristen stewart uh brian duffield written alien ripoff movie where they find a bunch of little cthulhu fuckers underwater and like no it's not cinema but it was underwater that's pretty cool yeah you know? they, they prompt probably hard hard to shoot or whatever those are the but yeah you know, like for example that's what i was like um pacific rim I love Pacific Rim. We know this, like, yes. So that, like, it's like I think that's what I like about that movie so much. It's like they're not coming from up; they're from down. So it's like, damn, that makes it so much cooler. <laughs> yeah, you know, well, I believe in flat Earth when you could believe in Hollow Earth. Oh, like, our, that's sick. Or all of our favorite, or all of our parents' favorite bad movie, Anaconda. Bro. <laughs> <laughs> it's, you know, it's I've like yet to see the, I've yet to see James Cameron's The Abyss, but they just restored it, like him personally. So I do want to see that once that becomes widely available. But like. You know I love me some Avatar. I love me some Aquaman. Steve Zissou. Some Meg. You know, the Meg. Yeah, I'm I am partial to movies that take place in the water Jaws. because yeah, keep come on. Like the technology is there. James Cameron has proved it. The I mean, maybe Cameron. we're not all gonna have his budget to make <laughs> movies underwater, you know, but this is uh, unexplored territory still, you know? Yeah, I mean so that's why I think I end up this this movie, the theme of this movie, and to for me liking it as much as I like Astro City and it's we end up for some reason um there's a lot of topic recently on Wes Anderson at least on Twitter this last week a lot it's of people, all because of the short films right a lot of people maybe you know but it seems a little late but a lot of people have been ranking them and then you know, put the letterbox list and they put in parentheses by the way these are all really really good like these aren't like oh we're ranking them because you know they, they're there but not because we're like this, and this one's bad. Like, no, these are all the same as Scorsese. would be like, well, these are all three and a half and above, honestly. 
but but yeah, we're exactly. just putting them against we're pinning them against each other because we're fucking bored. It's like when we did <laughs> yeah, it's like when we did the Quentin Tarantino rankings, right? And it's like, uh, this is his tenth best movie, but it's one of the best movies I've ever seen. <laughs> yeah, especially because these two guys, I, I like comparing them because Wes has a lot of films, but not really. Not Martin Scorsese type amount of like where you can be like, look, Marty, I like you a lot, but you have bad ones. You know, like you have ones that maybe you shouldn't have really. But him, I'm like, just rush, just, you know, Bottle Rocket was too limiting for him. Everything past that, I'm like, no, I get it. I get it. Like, this is, thank you. <laughs> yeah. I hate, yeah. Not to be like riding the Schmeet too hard, but all hits, no misses, right? Uh, call me when he makes a bad movie. He doesn't. Uh, I I love that he is a working director as well. Like, I don't know if people have been paying attention to the years of these movies as they come out, but it's like every two, three years. Shorter now. And it's like one of the biggest uh, breaks in time was between Fantastic Mr. Fox and Moonrise Kingdom, I believe. So it's like, I think that's like three or four years. And I think that's where he really did establish, he talked about like his other interests. And kind of like, I mean, he had already blown up, so we know he does other stuff like the short films or commercials for people and stuff like that, so... He was never really gone. He just kind of wasn't... He continues to work. And I really do love that about him. The same way I love that about people like Martin Scorsese, Steven Spielberg's, you know, like... They understand that at the end... Yes, this is an art form and there's a purity to it. But this is also your job. And this is the job that you signed up for and dreamed about having. So why would I be precious about how many of these I'm going to make, you know? Like, I don't feel like Wes Anderson has only made... What is it, like, maybe 11... Uh, what, 17, 18, if you count all the short films and stuff like that. I think that he'd probably make more if he could. Yeah. And, you know, and it's like, I, I, it's weird I'm ending the episode talking about Steven Spielberg, but it's like, to get to that kind of level of like, oh, I did Schindler's List and Jurassic Park back to back, or uh, Munich was shot and edited and released within six months. Like, that's insane. That's working on a god tier level that like will probably never be duplicated, especially at a, a quality like that, like Munich. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I mean, props to the guys who keep working, right? Like yeah. that's what I want. Ari Aster, don't stop. Julia Ducournau, don't stop. Greta Gerwig, don't stop. It's like, don't give me these. Oh, I need to live my life because you're not Stanley Kubrick, okay? <laughs> like yeah. when you become Stanley Kubrick, you can have that excuse of I need five years to live life and ponder, right? Like, but until that day. You're all second tier, and <laughs> you all need to get your asses to work and keep giving me more my, movies. My man was just trying to find books to do. Huh? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for real. Five years, you're just reading a bunch of books. Yeah. Not good enough. Not good enough. Oh, <laughs> man. All right. Anyways, so that's The Life Aquatic with Steve Zizou. Uh, next week, next two weeks, When Evil Lurks, Killers of the Flower Moon, and then I'm sure we'll be back with the Wes Anderson Marathon. We'll finish that off when we can. But it's an exciting time. Happy two years, Alvaro. <laughs> uh, happy two years to the listeners. Thank all of you who have taken time to listen to the show. And we're going to keep going for you, man. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.